0: Take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 24. We have read from Luke's Gospel a few times already. Luke chapter 24, we will begin in verse 13. Luke 24, 13. Uh, I was very much looking forward uh, to this all week. Uh, Very much looking forward to going through this text with you all. And very excited about uh, the encouragement from it. I hope it is a blessing to you. My voice is a little weak, recovering from some sickness and cold, but but I'm here and I'm glad that you're here and I want to worship the Lord together in his word. Luke chapter 24. We're going to read a lengthy session now. So if you listen best by just kind of quietly following along, that's fine. If you're one of these people that needs to have your eyes on the words on the page to not drift and wander, then read along. Because we're going to read in one large section here, verses 13 through 47. So we're going we're to read the entire account first. Stay with me. Uh, Luke twenty-four thirteen. Now behold, two of them were traveling that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. So it was while they conversed and reasoned that Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were restrained so that they did not know him. And he said to them, what kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? Then one whose name was Cleopas answered and said to him, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? And have you not known the things which happened here in these days? And he said to them, What things? So they said to him, The things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how the chief priest and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since these things happened. Yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us. When they did not find his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. Then he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe, in all the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things, and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Then they drew near to the village where they were going. And they said to one another, Did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us? So they rose up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together saying, The Lord is risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And they told about the things that had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. Now, as they said these things, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were terrified and frightened and supposed they had seen a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts arise in your hearts? Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. But while they still did not believe for joy and marveled, he said to them, Have you any food here? So they gave him a piece of broiled fish and some honeycomb. And he took it and he ate it in their presence. Then he said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. Then he said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it is necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. That's as far as we'll go. Now I'm going to preach a casual 55 minutes this morning. No, I'm just kidding. Some of you chuckled. Some of you were alarmed for a second. I'm not going to preach for 55 minutes. I'm going to try not to do that. But in Luke 24, we have a really amazing, a really amazing account here. And uh, it's a beautiful account of two men who meet the Lord Jesus on the day of his resurrection. This is the day that Jesus rose from the grave. This is not five days later or ten days later. They meet him on the day that he rose from the grave outside of Jerusalem on Wednesday night in our Bible study I mentioned that I was going to preach on this passage and and I think it was Pastor Justin who said that this would have been the first Sunday school lesson because it's the Lord's day on a Sunday and here Jesus is giving these guys this big instruction on this road and that's not a bad characterization Jesus is educating these two guys thoroughly and completely Now, I want you to observe for the sake of following along 10 things in the text. I'm going to move through these quickly, but 10 things that are worth some kind of comment, and we're going to keep our noses in the scripture this morning as we go along. First, in verse 13, see the numbers here. The numbers, the the specific numbers are two men going seven miles. That's the context of this whole dialogue. Two guys, not 10, not 20, not a whole host of Jesus' disciples. Two guys going seven miles. Behold, two of them were traveling that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. Let's remember that there are only two guys as we go along whom Jesus makes this appearance to. Seven miles, on the other hand, is quite a long walk. That is not a short distance. Um, If you are walking at a relaxed pace, according to Google, which I trust implicitly with all these calculations, we can presume it would take around two to three hours to casually walk this distance of seven miles. Now, I've seen some people from our church who go walking around the community and they're moving a lot faster than that. Jesus would have had to talk quickly for those people who are on their mission. But here these guys are talking casually and they're conversing as they go along and uh, they're going a distance of seven miles. Two men, seven miles, we can assume several hours. Uh, Second thing I want you to observe in the text is the appearance, quite unexpectedly, of Jesus. Verse 15 tells us the reader, So it was while they conversed and reasoned that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. That is astonishing. And we read of this incredible thing that this would be the third appearance of Jesus on the morning of his resurrection. He would have uh, risen early that morning and appeared to, to Mary Magdalene at the tomb, then to the women on the road, as we recounted there. This is the next appearance to these two men walking along the road. So the second point here is this sudden appearance of Jesus is, if the chronology is right, the third appearance of the Lord on this very day of his resurrection. Point number three, third thing to observe. Observe then that their eyes are restrained, according to verse 16. We need not attribute this to any natural thing here, okay? Um, The sun was not in their eyes, they had not left their glasses at home. This is uh, the supernatural intervention of God to restrain their eyes and keep them from recognizing Jesus, who they otherwise knew. Uh, God supernaturally prevented them from recognizing who it was they were talking to, and I believe it so that uh, they might more strenuously consider the message of Jesus, rather than being emotionally Uh, overpowered by the sudden appearance and presence of him if you've ever been nervous in front of someone or caught off guard to run into someone unexpectedly let alone the Lord Jesus whom you had seen crucified you might know what it's like to be thrown off to be set off your game, to be disoriented it's a great mercy of God that first he will allow them to experience all the instruction of Jesus before revealing Jesus to their eyes that's the third point, their eyes are restrained fourth point we observe in verse 17 that they are sad. Actually, we observe in verse 17 that Jesus observes in verse 17 that they are sad. For Jesus says to them in that verse, What kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? They were not disguising their disappointment and their sadness at what had happened to Jesus. They had believed that Jesus was the promised Messiah, they had followed Him, they had seen Him exalted in Palm Sunday, the early portion of the week, people of Israel gathered together praising Him, Uh, Hosanna, blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. This would have been a good representation of national Israel gathered together in Jerusalem for the Passover. They had been at the climax of their excitement about the appearance of Jesus and then in this wild swing of emotions they had seen the manipulation of the leaders of Israel conspiring with the Roman provincial authorities there Uh, and they had seen Jesus crucified this Messiah who they had loved and hoped in. I want you to get the scene here they are leaving Jerusalem they aren't waiting with the other disciples to see what will happen these two guys are departing. They are leaving. And they're talking as they go about how sad they are. A sense of defeatedness and discouragement and hopelessness. The other disciples, this is the third day. This is not an inconsequential day in all that Jesus has taught them. The other disciples remain in Jerusalem. But these two are walking away. And point four, notice that they are sad. Point number five, verse 18 we are given the name Cleopas. We don't know the name of the other man who's walking on the road, but in in verse 18, we're given the name Cleopas. Now, in John's Gospel, in John 19, verse 5, we are told that one of the women gathered at the foot of the cross with Jesus' mother was also named Mary, and she's called the sister of Mary, the mother of Jesus, because she is the wife of Clopas. Now, I'm telling you this because... The tradition of the early church, the members of the early church in the 1st and 2nd century wrote that this Cleopas and Clopas of John 19 are the same man and that in fact Cleopas was the brother of Joseph, Jesus' earthly father. And so by this, Jesus, uh, through the adoption of Joseph, uh, being born of Mary and Joseph, had an uncle, in earthly terms, named Cleopas. And I tell you this so that you know church tradition is that this Cleopas is that man. Now, that may not be be accurate, it may not be true, the Bible doesn't spell it out explicitly, but I tell you so that you are not thrown off if you encounter that tradition. The inclination that we have from John 19 is that there was a Clopas who was married to a Mary who was uh, the sister of Mary, the mother of Jesus, and this is what church tradition holds. Don't be thrown off if you catch some wind of that in teaching. Point number six. See the credentials of Jesus. Now, This Cleopas is going to lay out in pretty good detail for a short meeting the credentials of Jesus Christ in verses 19 through 21. Now here they are. First, you'll notice that he says Jesus was a prophet. He was a man sent to Israel by God. He was a prophet. He was not just any man. He was not just a rabbi, as he's often uh, spoken to by the people of Israel. He was not just a good man. He was not just a teacher. He wasn't a scribe or a Pharisee. Cleopas recognizes it is undeniable this man Jesus was a prophet. He was sent directly from God to us with a purpose. Second thing that Cleopas says of Jesus, he was mighty in two ways. The first, mighty in deeds, in works. He performed miraculous things. He was a prophet of God whose Uh, office of being a prophet whose prophetic office was verified in the sense that he did these miraculous things. He was mighty in deeds and no one disputed it. As a matter of fact, many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes who would challenge Jesus would often begin their challenge during his earthly ministry by saying, great teacher, we know you are from God because you do these great things. So, on Jesus' resume, prophet of God, mighty in works. Third, Cleopas says he was mighty in his word, in what he said. Um, he taught with authority the word of God. He didn't regurgitate rabbinical teachings. He didn't stand up in the synagogue and say things that might help you get through your work week or your life. No, he was mighty in his word. He came with a message from God as a prophet. He declared this message boldly with authority to the people, which is the fourth thing we see from Cleopas. That Jesus' ministry was very public. It was not a private affair which was covered up or concealed or hidden in some corner of the empire. No, he did these things before God and all the people, Cleopas says. Uh, It was a very public thing which Jesus did. Had God wanted to smite him, he could have done it at any point. Uh, There are no people who were refused an opportunity to hear from this itinerant preacher. He taught in the temple publicly even the week of his crucifixion. He was a prophet, mighty in work indeed, publicly before God and all the people. And then the fifth thing Cleopas claims has happened, that there had been an unlawful plot against him by the leaders of Israel. You see that in Cleopas's statement here, that there had been an unlawful plot. He had been arrested in the middle of the night, not in daylight, He wasn't taken in the temple when they had occasion to throughout that week but they went and they found him secretly and they arrested him privately. He had been put on trial immediately in the middle of the night secretly not in a public place where witnesses and testimony may be given but in the home of the high priest himself in the middle of the night immediately following his arrest. He had been beaten without a conviction prior to a conviction Um. Witnesses against him had been coerced. They had acknowledged this coercement and fraudulent witnesses had not themselves been prosecuted. Witnesses who in the course of this fiasco had perjured themselves by saying things inconsistent with the testimony they were supposed to give had been let off the hook. And finally, Jesus' criminality, if you read the account of the trial before Caiaphas... His criminality is established based on his own words, his own confession. Eventually, in frustration, he is asked, tell us plainly, are you the Son of God? And Jesus, who has had his mouth silent like a lamb led to the slaughter to this point, finally speaks and said, it is as you say, I am the Son of God. Now in Jewish law, no one could face capital punishment. No one could be executed based on words with which they incriminated themselves. It would be a form of suicide to say something self-incriminated and then go to capital punishment. And yet here is Jesus who had been crucified. The incriminating evidence coming from his own mouth that he was in fact the Son of God. All of this had been observed by Cleopas, by the rest of the mob, so that there could be no question to them of the plotting against the Lord. Finally, notice the disappointment in verse 21. Cleopas says, we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Seems that they had lost that hope, doesn't it? Seems as if Cleopas and his partner along this road had walked away from that hope. Uh, that Jesus, in their best summary, had been a mighty prophet, unjustly slain, and indeed, this made them sad. This is Jesus' credentials, the sixth point in the text. The seventh point, now notice Cleopas recognizing the significance of the third day. This is now the third day. Verse 21, Cleopas transitions away from who Jesus was and what had happened to him and says, indeed, besides all of this, there's the transition, today is the third day Since these things happened. Now, Jesus throughout his ministry had alluded to his death and resurrection after three days many times. Uh, Not just at the end of his ministry, but from the beginning. In fact, in John chapter 2, so the beginning of John's gospel, in verse 19, Jesus told the doubting Jewish leaders, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. They did not understand that immediately. In fact, they mocked him for it. In his earthly ministry, however, he continued to to make these allusions, and as time passed, they began to wonder if he was speaking of some some sort of resurrection, this destruction of a temple and a raising after three days. In Matthew chapter 12, the midway point of Jesus' ministry, he tells the leaders questioning him, these people demanding a sign. You might remember this from recent weeks passed. He says, For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And he leaves them with that. Privately, Jesus had told his 12 disciples many times that he would be killed and would rise on the third day. In fact, Peter outright argues with him on one occasion, at which point Jesus looks at him and says, Get behind me, Satan. Jesus is not interested in skating the cross. He knows he is headed there. In Mark 9.31 it says, For he taught his disciples and said to them, The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And after he is killed, he will rise the third day. By the time of Jesus' crucifixion, it is so well known that he has taught about the possibility of a resurrection after three days. This is the entire reason that the Jewish leaders who have condemned him to death, place a set of soldiers to guard the tomb in the first place, because they know, everyone understood, he had said these mysterious things that might indicate a resurrection on the third day. This is from Matthew 27, I'll just read three or four verses, it says, on the next day, this is after the crucifixion of Jesus, on which followed the day of preparation, the chief priest and the Pharisees gathered together to Pilate. they go to the Roman Authority, saying sir we remember while he was still alive how that deceiver talking about Jesus that deceiver said after three days I will rise they understood the significance of the third day he said they say therefore command that the tomb be made secure until the third day lest his disciples come by night steal him away And say to the people, he has risen from the dead. So then, if that were to happen, the last deception would be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard, go your way, make it as secure as you know how. This is specifically what they were guarding against. The the idea that after three days, Jesus would rise from the grave. You say, well, how do we know about this conversation? Well, we find out in the gospel accounts, there were actually a number of Pharisees who were followers of Jesus secretly, secretly who believed and hoped that Jesus would be the Messiah, secretly two of these men, Joseph of Arimathea from the council and Nicodemus who had already gone to Jesus secretly at night in John chapter three are responsible for getting Jesus' body from the cross. They use their authority and their position to get an audience before Pilate themselves saying, let us have the body of the Lord. So they are privy to these negotiating and backdoor meetings that are happening between the leaders of Israel. And they knew they were concerned about some dis- that Jesus would rise from the grave on the third day. So let's set soldiers about. And yet, despite all of this knowledge of the resurrection potential of the third day, here is Cleopas. And here is his friend leaving Jerusalem on the third day. I don't know if you have ever sold a stock right before it went through the roof or jumped off the bandwagon of a sports team before they suddenly signed the greatest player in the league. But this is the spiritual equivalent of that. These guys didn't leave Jerusalem on the first day. They didn't leave on the second day. They leave the morning of the third day. What's wrong with these guys? I mean, that's the idea. It doesn't. Let me just ask you, doesn't that seem like a foolish thing to do? Well, observe then Jesus' response. This is foolishness. You see it in the text. To exacerbate the foolishness of this, we read in verses 22 through 24, Cleopas even says, yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us when they did not find his body. So here they are leaving Jerusalem, sad, dejected. They have already heard accounts that he had risen from the grave. They knew what the women had said. They'd come back from saying. When they did not find his body, they came saying they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Certain of those who were with us, talking about Peter and John, ran to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. I mean, despite all the expectation of a resurrection on the third day, Cleopas and his friend here on the road, leading away from Jerusalem, sad and defeated, despite the the reference to a tomb being empty and angels and the like. They had heard the testimony of the women. They knew Peter and John went, but but Peter and John didn't come back having seen angels and so they don't believe. They don't believe. You want to talk about sexism here, they should have believed the women. The women were right. Point number seven here. Um, This is their... Uh, response to the expectation of the third day sad hopelessness point number 8 all right jesus's response jesus tells them this is foolishness I don't know if you've ever had that kind of a blunt conversation with someone before where they just describe a whole series of things that they've done in their life and all you can say at the end is this is nonsense you know this is foolishness what do you, but that that is how jesus responds in verse 25 it says then he said to them oh foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. The problem is not the things that have taken place in Jerusalem. The problem is that you are slow to believe what God has said would happen through the prophets. Here is the Lord's first point in the matter. Verse 26 Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into His glory? Jesus is saying, isn't it right? Isn't it appropriate that the Messiah would suffer these things and to enter into His glory? It is foolish of you, Jesus tells them, to ignore what the prophets of God have clearly said, that the Christ must suffer. And then from this point on, class is in session on the road to Emmaus. Jesus is going to teach. It says in verse 27, And beginning at Moses, now, I know I saw some reactions when eight or nine weeks ago I said that I was going to spend the next couple of months summarizing 850 chapters of the Bible, and we did that, right? We we got all the way up to the Book of Daniel, which is where we begin, Lord willing, uh, next Sunday morning. We we summarized from Genesis all the way to the Book of Daniel, and I got some some deep sighs and some you know some big you know. Eyes looking at me when I said, hey, over the next eight or nine weeks, we're going to review the first 850 chapters of the Bible. But if you think that's ambitious, Jesus covers from Moses all the way through the entire Old Testament on a walk to Emmaus, okay? Jesus is teaching. I don't know how fast he's talking, but he is teaching. Verse 27 says, Beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures. This is thorough It's not just a couple, you know, quaint stories from the Old Testament. From all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. You know, he is, you know, uh, it's vain if I talk about myself for a few hours, but it is appropriate for Jesus to. He is is explaining the things concerning himself. This is a seven-mile walk that these two guys are not likely to forget. Seven miles with Jesus, starting at the beginning, and they are moving through the Old Testament. It says he expounded. The word expounded means to explain or to unfold the meaning of. He reasoned with them from the prophets just simply text by text, man and woman by man and woman, explaining, explaining, explaining. Can't you see that this is about Jesus? This is about me. Now, Jesus is not going to let... I told you the numbers were important. These are two guys He is not going to let these two guys waver away on the road to Emmaus. He makes a special appearance to them to turn them around. He is going to return these two disciples. He loves them. He knows them. And he is after them here on this road. And he is going to teach their brains out for the next seven miles. They are left sad in their own foolish understanding of what's happened in Jerusalem. Jesus is going to make them happy in the Word of God. He is going to make them happy in the truth and the revelation of God's plan of redemption. He is going to explain what God has said about all of this. This is why we teach the Bible in our church. We explain the Bible on Sunday mornings and we explain the Bible on Sunday nights. And we explain the Bible on Wednesdays. Steve explains the Bible on Thursdays. We explain the Bible in various small groups throughout the week. We explain the Bible in nursing homes on Sunday afternoon. I am not interested in offering you psychological help. Um, I am not a comedian trying to entertain you. I'm not trying to earn your attendance or your attention or get you to put checks in the offering plate. There's no Kentucky Fried Chicken bucket that we're passing around to tip us after the teaching. We explain the Bible. Not to put a smile on people's faces or to give them warm and fuzzy feelings about themselves. We explain as Jesus explained the scriptures to the best of our ability because in the word of God is life and peace and joy. Apart from God's worth left to our own devices, there is only poor human philosophy and reasoning it does not save, it does not keep one happy, it does not make one truly happy. The philosophy of man is death, but in the word of God is life. And I am warm to the heart here to hear Jesus after the resurrection showing up just to teach the scriptures. He is our example in this. This Bible is all about Jesus. It says here in verse 27, He expounded to them in the scriptures all the things concerning Himself. It is all about Jesus. Every uh, strange sounding book to us in the Old Testament is pointing to the story of redemption in Jesus Christ. Um, Point number eight. Their unbelief according to Jesus is just plain foolishness. God has specifically said in all the prophets that this would happen. Point number nine. Notice in verse 29, they want more. They want more. No one has ever asked me for more after a Sunday morning service. That's okay, I am not Jesus. All right? But they want more. They get to the village, Jesus is still teaching, and they say, hang on, linger with us for a while. Stay with us. They are not ready to be done with this. The scriptures are breathing life and understanding to them in a way that they've not experienced Jesus stays and teaches until dinner time, talking with them, reasoning with them from the scriptures. And as he goes to pray for the meal at dinner, no doubt these men had heard in the fellowship of Jesus him pray for the blessing of the meal many times before. Many times before. We're we're given several of those experiences in the gospels themselves But this was the Jewish tradition and no doubt Jesus was always the one standing and praying for the meal. They had heard this and as he stands to pray for the meal, it says in verse 31, their eyes are open. Now that they have heard with burning hearts all that they should have known and believed already, they see with their own eyes the Lord whom they had so hopelessly wandered away from on their walk that morning and their eyes are opened and they have had their fill. Point number 10, they get their rear ends back to Jerusalem, which is where they should have been the whole time. It says, they rose, verse 33, that very hour, no delay, not, well, it's getting kind of late, and we spent kind of all day meandering down here. Uh, no, 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 this is not where the disciples of Jesus belong. Is what they? We are going back right now, that very hour. They Remember, when they asked Jesus to, say, to stay, their reasoning was, hey, it's almost dark, stay with us. So this is late in the day, it doesn't matter. They, they, uh, they have been uh, overwhelmed by this experience. They are going back to Jerusalem. We don't belong in this village. We belong in Jerusalem with the rest of the disciples. When they get there, they find that the Lord, after leaving them, had also appeared to Peter and then he appears to them all in verse 36 this is the thomas experience that we read in the other gospels of see the wounds in my hand and my feet uh, he eats to give them comfort that it is in fact him and not a ghost because they are very skeptical at the appearance of jesus and then he teaches them again from the scriptures notice what he teaches this is the final verses that we read verses 44 through 47 this is what jesus said to them after uh, convincing them as best he could that he is in the flesh and not some Then he said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets, and the psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. He teaches them all again. I bet those two guys are like, hey, we got this this morning. You guys, pay attention. You're going to like this. Like, uh, they're, they're, they're locked in. They get twice in one day. They were, they, Cleopas was in good shape after this, after this uh, Lord's Day here. Um, verse uh, 46, then he said to them, thus it is written, Thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in His name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. Beginning at Jerusalem. Not ending there. Beginning at Jerusalem. Beginning at Jerusalem, repentance and the taking away of sin would be preached to all nations. Now folks, that's what we are about here 2,000 years later this morning. I am not a Jew. <laughs> I, I, I have no allegiance to national Israel. I am one of the other nations. And we are here as representatives from all of the ancient peoples that we come from, attesting to the message of Jesus Christ that changes hearts and lives. We are preaching repentance, a turning away of, of the old self, a turning away of self-gratification, a turning away of sin. We are preaching The forgiveness of sin at the cross. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Three chapters later, Paul reminds us that the wages of our sin is death, but but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. John 3.16 tells us that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. Romans 10 verse 9 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Philippians 2.10 reminds us that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the message that we are preaching. You are a sinner. I am a sinner. I don't come from a righteous people, you don't come from a righteous people. But God, through the offering of His Son Jesus, out of His great love for us, has made it possible for sinful people to approach a holy God. And what's more than just being able to approach a holy God in the name of Jesus? God, the New Testament tells us, has given us the right to be called His children. Ephesians 1 tells us that God has worked a great act of adoption through Jesus. Going back to the prophet Hosea who said, I will take a people who are not my people and I will call them my people. There was a time in my life when I was not God's people. And yet he has adopted me into his family. On what grounds? On the grounds of what a great person I am? No. On the grounds of all the things that I've committed to do to make up for my sin and evil? No. For by grace are you saved through faith. And that is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Based on my confession that Jesus Christ is Lord. That He died and rose from the grave on the third day. I am saved. Based on my trust that what He did at the cross is sufficient to cover my sin. God has welcomed me into His family. And I ask you this morning as we close on Easter Do you know God that way? Do you know God that way? Are you truly a child of God? Notice I don't ask you you if you'd like to think of yourself as a child of God. Are you truly a child of God? You don't, I don't, we don't get to come up with the terms for our relationship with God. That's what many people try to do. Oh, I'll come to God like this. I'll come to God like this. I'm a Christian because I do this or I've done this or I've got an arrangement I can't tell you how many people have told me you know I've talked to God I've got an arrangement with God we've worked things out no you haven't friend no you haven't friend when a sinner stands before a judge the judge is the one who dictates the terms not the sinner when a criminal stands before a king the criminal doesn't tell the king how it's going to be the king tells the criminal how it's going to be And God had every right to tell you, the criminal, away with you. Away with you. You've made a mockery of my creative work in your life. Away with you. But instead he looks at you and he says, here is my son Jesus who has given his life, who lived a perfect life so that he is uniquely qualified to stand in the place of sinners. Here is my son Jesus whom I have freely given to you to bear your sin at the cross and if you trust him, he will write your name in his book of life. All of your sin will be overlooked not based on what you have done because if we judge this by what you have done you've got no hope. But if you look to him by faith and if he says you are his then eternal life with you. Adoption into my family with you. Eternal inheritance with you. I couldn't help but get emotional this morning thinking about how good God has been to me as I stood there beside our wounded friend Andrew with his, with his knee there in a brace. But I looked up to the choir and there I saw my wife and three of my daughters singing to God. And I couldn't help but become emotional about how blessed I am personally because I know what this world has in store for my wife and I and, and my daughters and my son. It has suffering in store for us. I'm going to die or they're going to die. I'm going to bury them or they're going to bury me. I know as happy as things might be now, I know that eventually things will not be so happy in our circumstances in this world and some of you have already experienced that. Some of you that's been the preponderance of your life unhappy living. The message of Jesus Christ is that you can have eternal life and inheritance with Him. When I look out at the faces in this room, I hope That I am looking upon the faces of brothers and sisters in Christ with whom I will share fellowship for all eternity. Not just funerals and burials and sickness and sadness and death. That will happen. Some version of that will happen. But that is not the end for the believer because of what we celebrate this day. Let's close with a word of prayer. father we thank you for your victory over the grave and death we thank you for the sacrifice of your son who went to the cross with awareness of what he was doing we thank you for the power of jesus and his great faithfulness not just to run down these disciples on the road to emmaus but to run us down all of us who have believed to convict us of our sin And to relate the gospel so clearly to our hearts in such a compelling way that we have believed. But Father, my heart breaks and I pray for those who might be here today who are not yours. Who truly do not know what it means to have fellowship with you. Whose life is largely a service to themselves or to other things. Not a service to you. Father, you are a good father and worthy of service. You are kind and gentle. Help them to be overwhelmed by the gospel of salvation this morning. Help them to not walk but to run forward and to speak with a pastor, a friend, a Christian acknowledging what you already know that we need salvation. I thank you for your great patience with us. I thank you for this day. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.